the rest of us, I invite us to actually turn to two passages of Scripture this morning. Uh, first, our text for our uh, study in the Gospel of Mark. We're in chapter 12, looking at verses 37, uh, 35 to 37 this morning. But also, you're going to want to be in Psalm 110 as well. Psalm 110 and Mark 12. We're going to be flipping back and forth between the two passages. As you're turning there, I just want to confess to you as a preacher that there have been passages as we've been going through the Gospel of Mark together that I've been nervous about uh, when they come up because some of the passages in Mark are just difficult passages. They're hard to understand and they're hard to apply to see their relevance to our lives. That is certainly the case with the text that we're looking at this morning. This is, I think, one of the hardest, if not the hardest passage in the Gospel of Mark to understand what's going on. And there may be a temptation within your mind as we read this text together to kind of internally scratch your head, uh, maybe even roll your eyes and think to yourself, I don't understand this. I'm not going to understand this. Why can't we look at something just a little bit more practical? And I think it's a good lesson for us of why it's important that our normal diet for our sermon series as a church family is to work verse by verse through books of the Bible so that it overcomes that temptation in us to want to skip past the parts that are just a little bit more hard to understand and that we would try to seek what God has for us in this passage. So if you wrestle with me this morning, I promise you the difficulty of the text will be rewarding because this passage reveals the most important truth in the entire universe. So, let's start by reading Psalm 110, and then we'll look at Mark 12, verse 35. First, Psalm 110. A Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way, and therefore he will lift up his head. And then Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 35. Mark chapter 12, 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David. David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Father, as we look at the, your word together, we pray that you would give us understanding, that you would open up our hearts to receive all the truth that this passage has for us. 
We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, there is a popular guessing game that's been around for decades. I wonder how many of you have ever played Guess Who? How many of you have ever played this game or owned this game? Okay, a fair number of people. Uh, it's a pretty simple game. It's a two-player guessing game. Each player picks an identity card, and the goal of the game is try to guess your opponent's identity correctly before they guess yours. The first person to guess it right wins. And so you kind of narrow down the options of who the opponent's identity might be by asking different questions. So you might ask, um, does your uh, character... Does your character wear glasses? Do they have a hat? Are they female? And you're just narrowing down all the options until you can confidently make a guess as to who your opponent's identity might be. I think when we look at Mark chapter 12, we're essentially looking at one huge big game of guess who. Now, up to this point, Jesus, the spiritual leaders of Jesus' day have been asking him questions, trying to test him and to pin him down with an identity that is not his. So for instance, two weeks ago, we saw the Pharisees and the Herodians tried to identify him as a political revolutionary. Last week, we saw the Sadducees tried to get him over to their team to identify with them. We also saw a scribe try to identify Jesus as a mishandler of God's law. And all the way that we've been going through this chapter, we see how Jesus has evaded their traps and how he has shown that he can be identified as none of those things. Now here in our text this morning, what Jesus is going to do, he's going to turn the tables on them. And now that he's narrowed down their options for them of who he is not, he is now going to ask them a question to help them see who he is. What is his true identity? I love one of the lines that the commentators said this week in my research. They said, in a day full of questions, Jesus asked the question of the day. What is that question? The question that Jesus is essentially asking and honing in on in this passage is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? That is the most important question that you will ever answer in your entire life. What you believe about Jesus and who he is is the most important question of your life. It's the core of this passage, and that is what we're going to see as we work our way through this text. Now, this is not the only section in Mark's gospel where Jesus has asked others about his identity. If you remember back in chapter 8, Jesus asked his 12 disciples, who do people say that I am? And then he asked them, who do you say that I am? Jesus is essentially asking that same question here, but he's doing it in a slightly different way. The question that Jesus poses is essentially... Who does the scripture say the Christ is? He wants them to start thinking about the Christ, the Messiah, the, the chosen one that God had promised he would bring to his people as the great savior, the great deliverer, the great establisher of his kingdom. So if you take a look at verse 35, take a look at verse 35, Jesus is teaching in the temple of Jerusalem, very epicenter of Judaism, and as he teaches his Bible lesson here, he gets his, th his listeners thinking and getting their minds stirring about the identity of who their Christ 
would be. And what question does he start out to ask them in his lesson? Verse 35, he starts his lesson by asking, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? The scribes understood the Old Testament rightly, that God said that the Messiah would stem from the Davidic line. So when he made his covenant with David in 2 Samuel, for instance, he said that he would raise up offspring from his own body for him that would rule over his kingdom for all time. The Christ would stem from the line of David. Jesus is not saying in asking the question in verse 35 how the scribes could teach that. He's not saying that they were wrong. What he's saying is that they weren't going far enough in their teaching of who the Christ would be. Jesus is showing us that he is David's son, but the scripture also said that he is so much more. What else would the Christ be more than just a normal man, more than just a son of David? Well, he goes to a particular passage to show us what more Jesus is. Where does he go? He goes to Psalm 110. Now, Psalm 110 is one of the most important texts in all the Old Testament scriptures. It is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the entire New Testament. It's actually alluded to and quoted 33 times in the New Testament. Uh, And every time that it is used, it's used in connection to the identity of Jesus. So the New Testament writers understood the importance of Psalm 110 and helping us to understand exactly who Jesus is. So this is the text that Jesus picks as his Bible lesson text, and he begins by telling us in verse 36 who the author of that psalm is. He says, if you take a look at verse 36, David himself is the author of this psalm, but even more important, he was writing in the Holy Spirit. That is a very, very important note for us as followers of Jesus. If we are followers of Jesus, we will believe what Jesus believes about the nature of the Bible. That the Bible is not just a book written by man, but it is a divinely inspired book and authoritative. It it holds authority as being inspired by God himself. And so he quotes verse 1 of Psalm 110 to show that he, the Christ, is more than just David's son. Take a look at what he quotes in verse 36. Quoting Psalm 110, Jesus says, Speaking of David, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And then he says in verse 37, do you see how David himself calls him the Christ Lord? So how is he his son? When David wrote Psalm 110, he was the king of Israel. There was no other king. There was no royalty higher than him, no authority greater in the kingdom of Israel. So who is he speaking about? He hears God speaking to someone who is his Lord. 
David understood that the Christ was the king who was higher than him. He was the divine king who was the king of heaven, seated at God's right hand, far above all other authority and power. Jesus is showing us he is not only David's son, he is God's son. Who is Jesus? He is God. He is God. Now, for us here this morning, for many of us, that is not news to us. We've known that and we've believed that for a long time. But there may be some of you here this morning who that is news to you. That is the first time that you have ever heard that the Bible teaches that Jesus is not just a good religious teacher. He was, he's not just a savior. He's not just an ordinary man, but that he is God. Maybe you grew up in a secular background, or maybe for you, um, you're just a very religiously devout person, and Christianity for you is more just a tool to help you live a good moral life and a good upright uh, life, and, and you appreciate who Jesus is, but you don't really believe he's God. In fact, I remember one time um, when I was on a missions trip in Africa, uh, my, the team that I was with came across another American girl uh, in the Rongi land where we were. And I got chatting with her, and very pleasant girl. We started talking about Jesus and what she believed about Jesus. And she said in the course of the conversation, she said, well, I don't believe that Jesus is God. I don't believe that he's God's son, but I really admire him, and I like to follow him because I think he's a great moral example of love and peace, and I think we all would do better by following his example. And I challenged her just a little bit, very politely. I just asked her a question. I said, Did you, are you aware that Jesus in the scripture taught that he is God and that people will go to hell if they don't worship him? She was taken aback. She said, no, I didn't know that. And I said, yeah, so if he wasn't God and he was lying about the fact that he is, do we still have room to say that he's a good moral example if he would do something like that? She said, wow, I, I never thought about that before. And I quoted for her from John 5, 18, where we're told that Jesus, the, the Jews hated Jesus and wanted to kill him because he himself was calling uh, himself God, making himself equal to God. Now, some of you are friends with Muslims. Others of you may be working with them. Uh, Muslims believe that Jesus was just another prophet of God. Some of you are related to Jehovah's Witnesses or have them as your coworkers and friends. Maybe they've knocked on your door. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses believe that he is just the archangel Michael. But the Bible teaches that Jesus is divine. In fact, this has so much to do with our evangelism in our day. Uh, I read a Barna research this week that was surprising to me. 50% of the people, this was just last year, 50% of the people surveyed in our nation had no idea that the Bible teaches that Jesus is God. They didn't know that that's what the Christian faith is based on. Um, even 30% of professing evangelicals who were uh, polled did not know that the Bible teaches that Jesus is God. So when we're evangelizing Grace Church, we as a church family, uh, we have to remember we're living in a day where we're starting at ground zero. You need to start by helping people to know and to see that Christianity matters and we're followers of Jesus. We worship him because he is 
God. Jesus is God. But that's not all this passage contains. It goes on because Psalm 110 tells us some very special things about who Jesus is to us as God the Son, as the Christ. Two sweet realities contained in Psalm 110 that Jesus preached from in this text that I want to point us to that make our relationship to him such a treasure. So at this point, we're turning to Psalm 110. So go ahead and turn there. Uh, we're going to see two things about who Jesus is to us as God the Son, as the Christ. And the first thing Psalm 110 teaches us is that Jesus as God is our King of Kings. David recognized him as the higher king, the king who is in heaven. Uh, how many of you are Queen Elizabeth fans or were Queen Elizabeth fans? Oh, that's not enough hands, friends. What an amazing woman. Uh, Queen Elizabeth died just about a year ago. She died September 8th at the age of 96. She reigned for over 70 years over the United Kingdom. She was the longest reigning British monarch of all time, and she's the longest reigning female in all of recorded world history. And this impressive queen was also a professed Christian. She often would attend worship on Sunday mornings, and at one point in her life, she was asked to compile a list of 10 songs that were her favorite songs of all time. And in that list of 10, there was a hymn that was her favorite. The hymn, Praise My Soul, The King of Heaven. If you go on YouTube, you can actually watch Queen Elizabeth in church singing this hymn with the congregation, singing these words. The greatest monarch in modern history singing the words, Praise My Soul, The King of Heaven. To His feet, Your tribute bring. This woman who had people curtsy and bow in her presence everywhere she went was also a woman who herself understood that she must bow herself before a higher king, King Jesus. Her majesty worshiped his majesty. Friend, if you are here this morning, you were created to bow your knee and swear to be the liege man of life and limb to King Jesus. And in do, so doing, we, Psalm 110 tells us there is great security in all, for all, who would submit to his reign and submit to his rule as king of kings. Take a look at verse 1 and 2 of Psalm 110. The great security that we find in bowing our knee to the king, King Jesus. David writes in, in verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Christ is the king who conquered all of his enemies, who rules over them sovereignly and will one day finally have them permanently put under his subjection as his very footstool. You are secure in Christ if he is your king. We already saw in Mark's gospel as he commanded demons that demons listen to him immediately. In fact, they come groveling at his feet. He is the conquering king, and if he is your king, you are on the conqueror's side. Just as Paul said in Romans 8, 37, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
And that's why in verse 3, verse 3 says that those who are his subjects, those who bow their knee to him, do so willingly. Let's take a look at verse 3. It says, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. We offer ourselves freely to him because he's such a good king. He was willing to come down from his throne in heaven to come and participate in our lives as one of us to conquer for us the enemies that we could never conquer ourselves. Sin, Satan, death, conquering them all as the great king so that we might be secure in him and that we might be made holy through him. But this psalm also contains a warning, a warning for all who are opposed to the reign of Jesus. Take a look at verses five and six. Five and six, David writes the warning for all who will not submit to his kingship. Verse five says, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. Friends, the Bible teaches that Jesus is going to come back one day. And because he is a good king, he's going to exercise perfect justice and judgment over all those who did not submit to his reign but continued in rebellion and continued in sin. But the gospel opportunity is now. Now he extends his arms in grace and mercy for all who would bow their knee to him. Friends, it would be much better for you to be embraced in his arms as a son today through faith in the gospel than to become a footstool for his feet in eternity by continuing in rebellion against him. He invites you to take him as your king. Paul said in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Jesus as God is our King of kings, and he's such a good king. My heart for you is that you would come to understand how good of a king Jesus is. That's my deepest prayer for you as a pastor. I was thinking last night as I was just making rounds around the sanctuary, walking around, just praying for our time together this morning, I thought about Charles Spurgeon and the last sermon that he ever preached in his life. He didn't know that it was going to be his last sermon. His health had been declining for a long time. He had been pastor of his church for close to 50 years. And his last sermon was all about how Jesus is such a good king. Do you mind if I read for you what he said to his congregation as his last words to them before he died? This is what he said to them, and I hope it's true of you, it's true of me as your pastor. He said, how greatly I desire that you who are not enlisted in my Lord's band would come to him because you see what a kind and gracious Lord he is. Young men, if you could see our captain, you would bow down on your knees and beg him to let you enter the ranks of those who follow him. Oh, it's heaven to serve Jesus. I am a recruiting sergeant, and I would even find there were few recruits at this moment. Every man must serve somebody. We have no choice as to that fact. Those who have no master are slaves to themselves. Depend upon it. You will either serve Satan or Christ, either self or the Savior. 
you will find sin, self, and Satan and the world to be hard masters. But if you bow to Christ, you will find him so meek and lowly of heart, you will find rest for your souls. There was never any like him among the choices of princes. He's always to be found in the thickest part of the battle. When the wind blows cold, he always takes the bleak side of the hill. The heaviest end of the cross lies on his shoulders. If he bids you carry a burden, he will carry it with you also. If there is anything that is gracious, generous, kind, and tender, lavish, and superabundant in love, you will always find it in him. These 40 years and more have I served him. Blessed be his name. I've had nothing but love from him. I would be glad to continue yet another 40 years in the same dear service here below if it so pleased him. His service is life, peace, and joy. Oh, that you would enter in at it once. God help you to enlist under the banner of the king, even this day. Jesus as God is our king of kings, but also, Psalm 110 shows us, Jesus as God is also our great high priest. I want you to take a look at verse 4. Verse 4 is a, is a troubling verse. Uh, what God says here is that he has granted to Jesus that he will be priest over his kingdom forever, but he will be not like any other normal kind of priest in Israel. He's going to be a special kind of priest. Verse 4, God says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, guys, we could spend a whole sermon on Melchizedek. We're not going to do that. If you want to go deeper in understanding who this strange character in the Old Testament is, I encourage you to go to Hebrews 7 this week. It would be a good study for you to do to dig a little deeper, read Hebrews 7, and see how this strange man, Melchizedek, was a perfect illustration of who Jesus would be. But what matters for us this morning is that you understand Melchizedek was a man in Genesis 14 who was unique. He was unique in that he was both a king and a priest. And in Israel, you were not allowed to be both. Israelites, the, the priests were not allowed to be kings. Kings were not allowed to be priests. But God said that Jesus, as the Christ, would be a new way. He would be both. He would be the divine king and the divine prince. Jesus is our great high priest, and three things are special about the fact that he is our high priest. First of all, Jesus is the only priest with authority to forgive our sins. Where can you go with your guilty conscience? Where can you go with the shame that you feel within yourself, knowing that you are in rebellion to God? Jesus is the only priest who has the authority to forgive you of your sins. Just like we've read in Mark's gospel, how he would speak to people directly and tell them, your sins are forgiven. How can we be sure that he is the one who has the authority to forgive our sins, that he is the priest? Hebrews 7 tells us, it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus is the priest who is able to offer 
his own self as our sacrifice for sin. I hope you understand the cross was more than just a symbol of how much God loves us. The cross was accomplishing something. The cross was Jesus' great, mighty sacrifice, a perfect, sinless sacrifice. Him taking on the debt of your sin upon himself so that you, trusting in him, might receive his righteousness. In him, as our priest, we can be sure that we have the forgiveness of sins. But secondly, Jesus is also the only priest who can help us overcome temptation. He is the only priest who can help us overcome temptation. Hebrews 4 says that we do not have a high priest in Jesus who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every way has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. My dentist grew up Roman Catholic, and he had the same priest from the time that he was a boy to the time he was in high school. And Every time I'm in my dentist chair, he likes to talk to me about theology because he knows I'm a pastor. I actually think he likes to dig me just a little bit. Um, and it's funny. He always asks the questions and then puts the instruments in my mouth. <laughs> but he said to me one day, he said, you know, Adam, I remember I was always deathly afraid of my priest because I knew every Sunday that I'd go to mass, I'd have to go into the confessional and I'd have to bare my soul to this man who knew everything I'd done wrong from the time I was a little boy to the time I was in high school. And I had just this kind of umbrella of shame over my head every week, uh, all day long, thinking, I'm going to have to tell my priest that I did that. And it was always so fearful. And you know what I said to him? I quoted Hebrews 4. And I said, this is so interesting that you say that because the Bible says that Jesus is our great high priest and that when we come to him, we don't have to come afraid. He actually is our high priest who is tempted just as we are, but he came through it victoriously and completely obedient. And when we come to him in our temptation, he doesn't roll his eyes at us. He doesn't shame us. He sympathizes with us. The text goes on, it says, we don't come to him afraid. We draw near confidently because we're coming to a throne of grace. And in Christ as our great high priest, he wants to give mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. All of your temptations can be brought safely to Jesus. He will sympathize with you. He will extend his grace and mercy to you and help you to overcome those temptations that you're facing. Jesus is the only priest who can overcome temptation. And lastly, Jesus is the only priest who has direct access to God to intercede on our behalf. Our high priest is sitting, even at this moment, right next to God the Father at his right hand, and he has been interceding for you the entire time that we have been in here. He is talking to the Father, praying to the Father about you. Uh, I had to laugh um, earlier, the, back in 2020, during COVID shutdown. I don't know if you saw this. I read an article during shutdown when all the churches were shut down. The Catholic Church made a pronouncement during shutdown. They told their ca Catholic followers that at this time, you are to pray directly to God for the forgiveness of your sins. And I thought to myself, Martin Luther would be chuckling so much right now. That's the gospel. 
That's why Jesus came, so that we could have access to God through him in a way that is direct. Jesus is our direct access to God. 1 John 2.1 says, if anyone does sin, we have a advocate. He is for you with God the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Uh, Paul writes in Romans 8.34, we cannot ever be condemned in our sin if we truly belong to him. If he is our high priest, no sin could condemn you finally because Jesus is the one who died for your sin, who was raised from the dead into new life. He is seated at the right hand and he is interceding for you. That means he's praying for you. Every time that you sin, every time you take a misstep, Jesus is pleading his promises and God looks at him. He still sees his wounds in heaven. He is pleased with the suffering that the son endured for your behalf and they will never break their covenant with you. You are secure in the one who prays for you. That's why Hebrews says he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. What has Jesus been doing ever since he ascended into heaven? Praying, praying, praying. Praying all his blessings upon his people. Some of you, I know your stories, you trust in the Lord Jesus and you love him, you're seeking to follow him, but Satan is really good at heaping shame on you, causing you to feel condemnation in your own heart, guilt for things that you've done, and it causes you to doubt, causes you to lose your confidence in who God is and wonder if he really does love you. In those moments, you have an advocate you have an advocate in Christ who prays for you, and as far as I know, not a single one of Jesus' prayers has failed yet. You are safe in the arms of Jesus. We're going to close the service this morning with the great hymn, uh, Before the Throne of God Above, written by a 12-year-old girl. And the lyrics are, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hand. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue could bid me thence depart. Who is Jesus? He is the Son of God. He is the King of Kings. He is the great high priest. Jesus is the one whom you were created to worship as God. He is the King in whom you are meant to find all your security. And he is the priest in whom you are to find all of your salvation, all of your assurance that you do belong to him and you are reconciled to God for all time. How do we respond to a truth like this? I think we respond the way that the people responded to Jesus when he taught them that day this psalm. In verse 37 of Mark 12, it says, the great throng heard him gladly. How do we respond this morning? Gladness. Gladness that this is our God. 
This is the God that we can worship. This is our king in whom we're secure. This is our high priest in whom and through whom we are saved for all time. Let's respond in joy and gladness. Would you pray with me?